It's good to be with you this morning. Um, if you're saved here this morning and you wonder why you're still going on with the Lord, it's because of Pentecost. It's not of yourself. And the very fact that I'm still walking with Jesus myself this morning is not reliant on my own strength, neither is yours. Thank God, isn't it? He keeps us. And even in the difficult times, the times where we feel that we just want to give up, there's a flame, isn't there? There's a fire. There's something there that just keeps us going on for Jesus. That's the power of Pentecost. And there's deeper places we can go this morning. I want to bring this out um, this morning, what the Scriptures would teach. I have changed my, my, my title slightly, and one in which I give to Andrew. It's the divine power to live and witness for Christ. Not a big change, but an important change. A divine power to live. See, some people try to witness before they learn to live. We need to learn to live right before God, and then our witness will follow thereafter. doesn't mean we have to wait to be perfect, because it'll never happen. But there is a living that goes along with our witnessing, and the Lord has given us a helper in them areas. So we're going to be reading this morning at Luke's Gospel 24, starting at verse 44 this morning. Verse 44. Now, verse 20, 44, yep. Yeah. And when you get here, just to help you in where we pick up the reading, at this point in time, Jesus has been crucified. He is risen from the dead. He's walked the earth some 40 days at this point. We know that if we work it out through Pentecost, but we're not going into that too much this morning. But just so you know, at this point, when Jesus is about to speak, he has been risen from the dead, and he appears to the disciples. So you need to understand how they might feel. How would you and I feel? We're told that they are frightened and they're startled, and they thought they had seen a ghost. And in the Christian life, there's many things that we will not understand um, at first. But Jesus appears to his disciples. In verse 38, it says this, Why are you troubled? Jesus speaks to the church. They're, they're they're confused. They're thinking they're seeing all sorts of things. Why are you troubled and why do doubts, there's the big one, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet for it is I myself. So Jesus affirms who he is to the early disciples. And any man or woman that comes to, comes to the Lord, comes to faith, they've had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Jesus always affirms himself and reveals himself to, to them. So then in verse 44, this is where we pick up our reading. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and within the Psalms, that they must be fulfilled. And then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, For it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In verse 48, For you are my witnesses, of these things. And then there's the promise of Pentecost, of the Holy Spirit. And this comes moments before the Lord ascends to heaven. In verse 49, here's the promise. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with this power from on high. In verse 50, we see the ascension. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven or glory. So think of that promise. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are closed with power. So there's a promise of power in your life. Now, in your Bibles, please turn forward, go forward to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. 
So Luke, John, then you come to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, um, the first verse. This is where Scripture teaches where the fulfillment of this promise is for us this morning. I know many of you already know this, but we have to teach these things and keep people up to date. So Acts 2, verses 1 through to 4, this is the fulfillment of that promise to the church. So when the day of Pentecost had fully come, <clears throat> excuse me, they were with, all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house in which they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Notice that, each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in all their tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Amen? So just to help us get on the track here this morning on what Pentecost is and where it comes in the calendar before we dive into it, we know that Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, um, Easter time. That was the preparation day for the Passover was about to take place. We know that 50 days after Easter, after Passover, came Pentecost. So what does Pentecost mean? Well, in Greek, it simply means 50. So it has not that deep of itself, but that's what it means. Pentecost means 50. So on the 50th day after Christ rose from the grave, and 10 days after the ascension, where he was raised up, the Holy Spirit fell upon the early church, as was promised in that upper room. Now, to Israel, Pentecost is a celebration of first fruits for their harvest. It's the provision of God. But for the Christian Pentecost Sunday, it's a harvest celebration of a different kind. It's a time when we remember the, the harvest of the Holy Spirit upon the church. This empowering, this, this equipping of believers, this great uh, fruit of, of God's children coming alive with the gospel. People equipped to both live for Christ and to witness boldly for Christ. Now, a, a Christian theologian or teacher called J. Lloyd he asked, um, he had a TV uh, ministry, and he, he put this question out for people to respond. And, and thousands of Christians responded to the question that he himself asked. And his question was simply this, what are your needs in living out your faith as a Christian? Now, there was many different responses that came back. One answer that came across strong again and again was a deep cry within the church for power to live out their faith, this great desire for more, more of God, more strength in our life to overcome and to see victory. And there was one letter that said it all. It said this, let me quote it. Teach me how to live the abundant life, for I'm tired of the struggle and I'm tired of the strain. How do I find freedom and a joy to live for Christ each day of my life. Now, what this tells us, if we look at that compared to the early church, what this tells us is that there's a quenching of the Spirit in our generation. That's not a condemnation, that's a recognition. There's a quenching of the Spirit. There's a fabrication going about that isn't doing it for the church. It isn't doing it for you, and it isn't doing it for me. It can look good from a distance. It can even sound very good, but does it change you? Does it change me? Does it really empower us to go on and live? And here we see what has been played out before us in this 
This questioner is there, there is a quenching of the spirit in a generation. It also reminds us of this truth that dull religion and powerless meetings have no place or desire in the life of the church because there is a desire within God's people for this supernatural power of Pentecost to be let loose again in our gatherings and in our lives. Amen. Is that not true? There's a desire for this awakening within the church. I considered the church, just as I was doing, studying for this this week, as a global, <clears throat> and I asked myself, is the church making much noise today? And I don't really know, but if it is, I can't hear it. I'm talking about the global church. With all that's going on, <clears throat> we've got something to say. And I know there's a fear. That's the work of the enemy, of course. But the early church didn't exactly have favor with their community. In fact, Nero went on to use them as lampposts. And this tells me that there is a, an empowerment that is unveil, available to you and I that will take fear and it will set it out of our lives. It will cause us not to criticize people but to speak truth to them. People, there, There's a power that is available to the church that needs to be reignited and maybe re-realize this, this generation. Now, a man called J.L. Bryce, he said, he said something interesting. He said this, he said, the church has halted somewhere between Calvary and Pentecost. Now, you need to take time and work that out for yourself, but it says quite a lot. The church, listen, we need to fill our lives with God. There's too many other things that are filling our lives. And by doing so, the things of the world will, that thing, that them things which dehydrate us will have to go, naturally. Please say amen, church, if you agree with me. There, there has to be this understand that if we fill our lives with everything else but God, we will be dehydrated. Now, we will look good. We might sound good. But we will know there's something lacking. There's a power missing. And, and that's what I say. I don't see the Bible's changed anyway at all. We, we need to fill our lives with the things of God. <clears throat> In the early church, they first had to go to Calvary, didn't they, to get saved? Then, after she went to Calvary, where'd she go to? She made her way to the upper room to, to be filled with the Holy Spirit that day of Pentecost. And before any of us can be filled with the Holy Spirit and experience this new life in Christ, we must first, first visit Calvary and be saved. Then, once we are saved, we make our way to Pentecost. Now, I'm going to say something that can be challenged and should be challenged, but I'm going to say it because we need to hear these sort of things because I believe it to be true because I know for a few years it was true in my own life. There's many believers that fail to move on from Calvary and never really experience that power of Pentecost for themselves and their lives because we cling on to Calvary, we walk around Calvary, we often mention Calvary, and we have to be repetitively repent of our sins and be set free. When Jesus said it's finished, and yes, there's confession, we need to keep short accounts for the Lord, <clears throat> but we don't stay at Calvary. <clears throat> Pentecost, you see, is this. It's a place of life-changing power. That means if you're here this morning, you're bound by addictions of any shape or form, or maybe you're not, but you're bound by by religion and you're not saved. There's power that you can be set free and all your sin can go and you can live a free life. That's what the gospel promises and teaches. Pentecost speaks of power. It's a place where your life is changed forever. 
Amen? It happened to me at 24. I don't know what age you were saved at, but I was in the middle of everything that I thought was wonderful, and at times I thought it was wonderful. There's something missing. It looked good. It seemed very good. Probably a wee bit of the life in the soul in certain places. Anti. Powerless. Fake. It was my own type of religion. But, but something came into my life that some 20 years later I'm still standing here clothed in a sound mind with this change. Amen? You know what I'm talking about this morning. This is the power of Pentecost. It changes your life. It gives ordinary men and women power to overcome sin. Do you remember that? Overcome sin. Things that used to pull us into the gutter. And the old enemy would tell us that we have no power over them things anymore. We do have power in them things. Fill your life with God, them things will go. Power to live boldly for Christ. Power to witness boldly for Christ. And you know what? Sometimes with minimal effort. Now there's the thing. Minimal effort. Are you sure you've got your theology right? My experience, my life's filled with God. Things happen around me. I don't have to fabricate them. I don't have to make them. They happen. Any man or woman have had the privilege of leaving the Lord. It wasn't my doing. Anything ever seen done for God, it was the Lord's work. Before Pentecost, the early church lacked power to live for Christ boldly and a witness for Christ. This can be seen in the life of the first disciples. Now, I want to consider one disciple. I'll be quick this morning. Peter. I want to consider the apostle Peter. Because what we see in Peter's life before Pentecost, we most likely might see in our own lives today. If you're taking notes, the first thing I see in the life of Peter is this. There's a fear of sinking. Or you can call that a fear of failure. I don't want to do this in case. And you'll find that a lot of people will maybe help you not do it in case. There's a fear of sinking. So in Matthew 14, we read a story where Peter walks on water. Isn't that something? Peter, an ordinary man, walks on water. The story tells us that the disciples are adrift at sea. The waves and wind are, uh, have come up against them and began to beat the boat. Then the disciples see that looks like some sort of a ghost walking in the water in the distance. We're told they're terrified. They believe they saw a ghost and they began to cry out in fear. Now that much is understandable. Let's not worry about that. No matter how much filled you are with the Holy Spirit, if you ever see the Lord coming towards you walking in the water, expect to be terrified. Expect to be, what's going on? That's fine. But then something amazing happens. Jesus speaks into that fear, but Jesus always speaks into your life. He'll speak into your fear. He'll speak into that brokenness, that place where you're not sure. He always speaks into our lives. And here we see Jesus speaks into that fear and he calms him. He simply says, take heart. See, one word from, one sentence from Jesus can change everything. Do not be afraid for his eye. And what we see is, with the word of God spoke to, 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 to Peter at this time, that faith begins to rise up within him. And Peter says to Jesus, listen, Lord, if you command me to come to you on the water, I'll come. Now, we don't give Peter enough credit for this. He realized something that we don't at times. He realized that if Jesus commands, 
That's a, if you ever go to try and walk on water and you sink, here's the problem. Jesus didn't command you to come. But Peter understood that if Jesus commanded him to walk in the water, then what would happen? He's not a great audience this morning. Eh? What would happen? He would walk in the water. I don't know if I have as much faith as that, but Peter had that. Our church, what if we practice that sort of faith in our lives or as a church? Think about it. There's no limits to what Christ can do with the church who has that kind of faith. Some people call it reckless. And Jesus says to Peter, come. Now, there's a wee lesson here. The lesson is this. Be careful of what you pray for. Because I don't think Peter really expected to be told to come. But anyway, Peter goes out, gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on water. Now, there's something about this part of Peter's life. His eyes were fixed on Christ, church. But then he begins to take his eyes off of Jesus and he starts to look at the water and he, he starts to look at the storm and goodness knows what the other disciples were saying. Peter, come back, Peter, what do you... We don't know, but you can just imagine. Sometimes the church is our biggest critics. But we don't know, but all we know is that panic begins to set into Peter's life. And he begins to question and he begins to rely on what? Only his own abilities... And then he begins to sink. And how often, church, as I thought about this, that we, when we're in the middle of a storm, we take our eyes off of Jesus. Because it's easy to look at Jesus when everything's great and there's no storm and we're in control. We turn left and the boat, it turns left. It's easy to be fully reliant. But how often, like Peter, we begin to rely on our own abilities at this very moment. And how often... We don't do what God asks us to do in life because of fear of sinking or failure. Maybe that's you this morning. God has pressed it into you or given you gifts to, to do certain things, asked you to do certain things. And because of a sense of failure or afraid of sinking, we don't do it. We're all applicable. This can be applicable to us all. Peter had this fear of sinking before Pentecost. Another thing I see with Peter, and this is a second point, he had a fear of loss. This fear of loss involves personal cost. It can involve pain and hardship on our behalf. So that's Matthew 16, verse 21. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed as well. But on the third day, he said he'll rise again. Now, this caused Peter great concern. The personal cost of what Jesus had just said to Peter was more than he wanted to pay. And see, the personal cost of following the command of God is never cheap in our lives. Here's the thing. At the very simplest level, when you come to faith, old friends may well turn against you. That's just the simplest level. Your family might stop inviting you to certain places. Your life might begin to look better and the people around you mightn't like that and try to destroy that. These are just some, as I say, simple things. There's a cost. There's a personal cost of following Christ. And it, it will always pay dividends, you see, but it's hard to see that as a time. And Peter, for him, the cost of going to Jerusalem at this point meant that Jesus was going to die. And his life as he knew, knew it was going to change forever. It was never going to be the same. That was a cost to him. 
And that's all he could see was this personal cost of losing Jesus. But he failed to see the dividends that, that Jesus said on the third day he will rise again. Now, Peter, he's overwhelmed with the fear of losing Jesus, but he never heard the rising again part. And here's the bit I love, because this reminds me of me a wee bit. And I imagine some of you would be a bit like this as well. <clears throat> Peter rebukes Jesus. Have you ever done that? Maybe not just as you would, as you would think, but have you ever told Jesus that he's wrong in one sense? Or, you know, Jesus, I see your way, but this is my way. I think this would be a wee bit better. You see, that's... But Jesus doesn't even go around about it that way. He just simply rebukes Jesus. He says, Lord, this will not happen. I love it. And what he's really said here is, not thy will, Lord, but mine. Now, we might never ever prayed that prayer, but I can guarantee you that our lives have said that. Lord, I know what you're saying, but not your will done, but my will. You see? The audible isn't always what's before the eye. Sometimes what's happening before your eyes is the fruit. In fact, I'll take that back. What you see before your eyes in somebody is the fruit. What comes out of the, word, the mouth is the noise, but what you see in their life is the fruit. <clears throat> what we see in the, in, in the life of Peter here is there's a lot of stuff coming out of his mouth. So Peter rebukes Jesus. Then Jesus rebukes Peter. Because Jesus isn't a wee soft leader. And this is a warning and a lesson to Peter. He learned something. He learned that not doing the will of God out of the fear of, of, of personal loss or the cost is nothing else but the work of Satan. That's strong. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Peter. No, actually he doesn't. What's he say? Get behind me. Get behind me, Satan, for your hindrance to me. Now, Jesus is trying to teach Peter something. And he's trying to teach you and I something this morning. Get behind me, Satan. He doesn't call him Satan because he thinks he's Satan, but he knows what's going on. The personal loss of following Christ had become a hindrance to the witness in Peter's life. And I want to ask this morning, is there something in your life that's stopping you from doing what God is asking of you to do? What is it? What you need to ask yourself is, first of all, is it legitimate? Is there a legitimate reason why you're not doing what the Lord has asked of you? And then you need to ask yourself, is it a hindrance? Be real with yourself. Is this really legitimate or is it a hindrance? And Jesus says to Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, the mind that is set on the world will always count the lost and do little. That's the truth. But the mind that is set on the things of God will count the cost, but look to God to cover it. Amen? God's no man's debtor. Before Pentecost, Peter had within him a fear of failure. Fear of sinking. There was a fear of, of personal loss. He counted the cost. Then lastly, Peter had within him a fear of man. In Mark 14, verse 67, if you're taking notes, Jesus has just been arrested. Now, I want you to see this. Now, before, he was now before the council in the high priest's home, Cephas, excuse me. And we are told that the leading priests, and elders and all had gathered and that as they were trying to, it was a kangaroo court, and, and many lies had been spoken against Jesus in a bid to get him crucified. So that's the context of that. But in verse 66, as all this is going on, and, and, and Jesus is again the wall, if you like, not really, but in our eyes, everybody's again him. We read, we read these words, meanwhile, Peter. Now, don't misunderstand. Every word that's written is to get your attention. Meanwhile, Peter. 
There's an example, there's a, there's a fire going on at the front and there's a couple of nice cars are on fire and everybody's trying to get them out. But mean, meanwhile, Neil was sitting here on his phone. You get the picture. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below warming himself on the fire. And as Peter stood there, we know the story, a servant girl who had worked in the high priest's house recognized Peter. And she looked at him closely and said, you're one of them disciples. You're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? And Peter said, no. And within that next hour, Peter would deny the Lord three times because of the fear of man. I understand this, because I do. The fear of man is very real. It stops us from doing many things in our lives, let alone witnessing. It stopped Peter from boldly confessing Christ. In fact, it stopped him confessing Christ at all before those who weren't saved and rejected Christ. Now, fear is a powerful snare to the tongue. It's an awful snare to the tongue. And it's a hindrance to our witness. Anytime I've not witnessed, it was out of fear. And what I notice is as soon as fear sets in, this, this turns to ice. It becomes a hindrance. Now, let me be clear on this. Peter loved the Lord and he desired to serve him, but there was a problem, a problem that the early church had and a problem that many of us wrestled with. Peter was powerless to live for Christ in his own strength. That's the lesson in that. See, in Mark 14 and 66, we see Peter's fear of man and public denial of Christ. But I want to say this to you. In the verse 50, you know what else we see? We see our own fear of man. We see our own public denial of Christ. For it says in verse 50 that all his disciples deserted him and ran away. Meanwhile, as Jesus was back again the wall, the church was away. That's the picture. And what a picture it is. It's the same picture that J.L. Bryce paints when he says the church has halted somewhere between Calvary, the place of salvation, and the place of power. And they're hovering about in the middle. Somewhat powerless. There's more power to be got, but it's safer here around warming ourselves. And, and there's this picture that we see. Peter was stood around a fire, warming himself, mix, mixing with the unsaved, if you like. But he was silent. That's why we need the fire of God within us, church. Peter was silenced because of the fear of man. He sank because of the fear of failure. He became a hindrance in the ministry because he started counting the cost. It's a fear of loss, the fear of cost. And you know, church, I think we must move on from Calvary. Why? Because Jesus never stayed there. Why should his church? Before Pentecost, the church was filled with all types of fears. Fears that we all have within us. But in Acts 2, we see a a different church emerge. Praise God. We need to see this because this is, this is written for you this morning. If you're longing for more or you're wanting to know where that power is, you need to understand there's a place that we have to get to and it's simply Pentecost. That place of moving on from being saved, moving on from them elementary areas and into the deeper things of God where we open our mouths for the things of God and God will fill it. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together the heavens opened and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Mighty is a key word. And it filled the entire house and tongues as a fire appeared and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak. They began to speak. 
These men began to preach in every language of the people around them. That's the miracle of Acts 2. It's not the spiritual tongue that we know about. This was a literal anointing that they could speak a language they were never taught. These men began to preach to the people of different languages. And God now, we see, is reversing the, the Tower of Babel curse where, where all languages were separated. People now under one gospel, God was reuniting men back onto himself. And we're told in verse 12 that, that all the people were amazed and perplexed. We want to know what this was all about. Then there was those who mocked. There will always be people who will mock. And they said they were filled with new wine. The church was so on fire and speaking about God, they thought they were drunk. I don't know if you've ever been filled with a demon drink, as it was called. Sadly, I have a history. And I know this much. When I got a certain amount of that stuff in me, I started this all weekend. Just mouth, 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 mouth. Now, utter nonsense, I'm sure. But what we see here is men and women of God filled with a different spirit. It's not a demon spirit. It's a power from on high and they're speaking. What are they speaking? Not jubilous, not nonsense. They're preaching Christ. They're sure in testimony. They're telling people, listen, what Jesus did for me, he can do for you. Do you see the difference? That's what the power of Pentecost does in our life. We see here the words in verse 14. We read this. As people mocked, it says this, but Peter. Now, it's not meanwhile, Peter. It says, but Peter. Now, this but means something. It's not meanwhile Peter was warming himself at the fire, denying the Lord. No, it says, but Peter. It means that Peter is a wee bit different this time. Peter's no longer afraid of sinking. He's no longer standing still for fear of personal cost. He stood up. He stood before uh, uh, the people. He's no longer afraid of men. And, and what we see is Peter addresses a vast crowd. He's still with me, church. I know this is a lot to take in. He's still with me. Here's a new man. Here's what it is to be a Christian. You'll not stand warming yourself filled with fear. I'm telling you that this is what the Scriptures teach you, that there is a life in Christ and it doesn't involve sitting back warming ourselves because that's dead, isn't it? You want to know where the power is, step out and the power comes. It does, doesn't it? We know that. You step out, the power comes. Jesus works. We sit back, we start to wonder where the power is. We see nothing, nothing happen in our life, in our church life. Church, we know this. We're on a journey. We've been on a journey. We're tipping into it. I'm not preaching to the, or sorry, I'm singing to the, 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 the choir as such, aren't I? But we need to remind ourselves that here we see that Peter addresses a vast crowd. And he preaches the gospel to them. He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not worried that you don't like Jesus anymore. He's not concerned that you're going to crucify him. He doesn't give him monkeys. He's telling you the truth. And there's a power with him. And this power is not only giving him a boldness to witness, but a boldness to live for Christ. And there's a protection in it. Repent, he says. Now listen, today you can be saved. Maybe you're sitting and you're wondering what life's all about. You repent of your sins and you can receive this power for yourself. And you can receive a new life, become a witness. A new man for God, a new woman. Now after Pentecost, Peter becomes a man of prayer. I want to show you, I'm going to close with this. Three minutes. These are some points that I noticed just briefly, but time's gone on. 
After Pentecost, there's some noticeable changes in the man himself. Peter becomes a man of prayer. Acts 3 and 1, Peter and John went up to be together in the temple in the hour of prayer. See, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, received a new desire to pray. And there's people, there's you this morning, there's I this morning, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit again, if nothing else, to receive a new desire to pray. Amen. The flesh doesn't want it. The flesh will let you run around that town five times rather than sit for five minutes and pray. But when we have the Spirit in us, it happens. We just receive this power, desire to pray. He was found at the meeting house. And there's something about when you get born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, you just want to be in fellowship with other believers. So we see that he became a man of prayer, Spirit-filled. After Pentecost, Peter also became a preacher of the gospel. And here's the thing, he wasn't just a preacher. He was a mighty preacher. His sermons were seasoned with the Holy Spirit. They were empowered to see life's change. And in one sermon, 3,000 men and women come to faith. That's something. This is after he rebukes the people, after he doesn't give a monkeys and he tells them, 3,000 souls come to faith. Church, every time you share about Christ, you'll understand something. You have a power. Your words carry a power and you can change a life through the preaching of the gospel. After Pentecost, Peter received a supernatural power. Listen, not only to live for Christ, but to die for Christ. And with this, I close. Peter was condemned to die with Nero, Roman emperor, as was the apostle Paul. It's the belief of many biblical scholars that Peter was crucified for Christ, and that hasn't, that has uh, remained unchallenged. But listen, listen, Peter didn't fear his crucifixion. He embraced it and thought it was an honor to die for God. That shows you the level that we can get to. <clears throat> the place that we can be. And Origen, a historian, said this writing at the time. Peter felt himself to be unworthy to be put to death in the same ma manner as his master. That's something. There was something in his life that not only gave him the power to live, but there's power to die. <clears throat> and he counted, Peter, as he stood before that cross, about to be nailed upon it. He said, now, hold on. He says, I'm not worthy to be hung on that cross, will you hang me upside down? And he hung, hung him upside down. If you ever see the upside down cross, that's what that is. And, and, and the belief is that Peter, the reason that he felt unworthy was because the times in his past where he had regret, where he denied the Lord. I don't know that, that's what some scholars would say, but all I know is this, that he had an encounter with the resurrected Lord. He had the fears of sinking like we have. He's had the fears of failure like you and I have. He's the fear of men that we have. But he received this power, and all of a sudden he didn't care. All of a sudden he became a mighty instrument for good, for the gospel, and his life counted. And I don't know how, but by the grace of God, when we reach the deathbed, it's a place I don't like to think about. But here we find a man that not only reached the deathbed, but reached it prematurely. It was no age that killed this man. And as I stood there, he said, listen, I count it an honor to die for my master. But not like this. I want to be upside down. There's a power to live. There's a power to die. There's a power to help you live and experience that freedom in Christ. Amen.